It's Friday, May 29th. Welcome to episode 27 of Insert Content Here. Insert Content Here. Words intentionally unclear. Insert Content Hi, I'm Jeff Eaton, digital strategist at Lullabot, and every couple of weeks I get together with cool and interesting people from the world of content strategy and digital publishing and CMS technology to uh, chat about the latest news, interesting projects they're working on, and fun stuff like that. This week we're talking to Dean Barker, uh, an old friend of the podcast. Uh, he's a chief strategy officer at Blend Interactive. He's a frequent writer and speaker on content management and digital publishing, and he is a prolific blogger on uh, content management issues. And he's also the author of the upcoming book, Web Content Management with O'Reilly Media. Uh, Welcome back to the show, Dean. Oh, thanks. It's been like 18 months, and I guess I was hoping in that 18 months your theme song would have gotten better, but... Oh, no, um, you you don't mess with with a jingle. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly wishful thinking, so... um, But yeah, great to be back. Awesome. Um, you know, I I have to say, like, it, it feels like every time we cross paths, we we always have fun and and well, for for someone who really really enjoys talking about CMS technology, I will say our conversations are always thrilling and and engaging. Um, but I, I always know. find that our conversations border on dangerous because I think both <laughs> of us come away like with with our paradigms reset and about fourteen different ideas we want to try out. I, I so, think. Um, Last time you dinners did, with you can be tricky. <laughs> you did manage to convince me that explicit hierarchies in in content management are a good thing. So I'm that, a big believer. That was a big thing. Um, so, anyways, I, you know, I, I think um, one of the things that's happened um, since we last uh, since you were last on the show is your your title is now chief strategy officer, which is uh, a very highfalutin uh, a very highfalutin title. Uh, what exactly constitutes the work of a chief strategy officer, especially like in an agency like like Blend. Sure. So, chief strategy officer, in large part, was um, just to get away from the title of business development. Um, what we find is the sales process that we do here is very, very consultative. Um, we we're not a hard sell organization. Uh, we tend to just jump into our clients' problems and try to fix them. And so, we've always tried to play down the kind of explicit sales aspect of what we do. And uh, so I wanted to get away from the title business development because that, that automatically sets people on guard. And uh, we were looking for something. Um, we wanted to stick with kind of the chief motif because we had a, a chief technical officer and a chief executive officer. And uh, chief strategy officer seemed to fit. I mean, it was sufficiently vague. But then the other reason why it fits is that you know our entire business here is based around content management. And uh, our business model is largely about strategic partnerships in the content management space. The number one thing we did to expand this company uh, were partnerships with both content management vendors and agencies that, that whose clients use content management systems. And so in terms of the ongoing strategy of the firm, it uh, really revolves around how we relate to the content management industry. And that's, that's kind of what I've specialized in over the years. So it was a natural fit. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we all about we've had a very similar kind of experience with the sales process. It's, I think, for people who are used to working with like vendor style sales 
pipelines, it can be a little weird when, you know, you start talking to somebody who's like a sales director or business development or even sales engineer. And what they want to talk about is, hey, let's, let's chat about your problem. What kind of stuff do you deal with uh, with that rather than jumping straight into? So what kind of uh, what kind of arrangement can we work on before we talk to you? Yeah, I found the number one way to to sell services is just to start solving problems. And more often than not, that results in a relationship. It helps to be very, very passionate about what you do. I love content management. I love solving content problems. And a new problem is, is absolutely fascinating to me. So uh, it's worked out very, very well. And, and as a sales strategy, 10 years down the road, uh, seems to be the right direction to go. Yeah, it, it, it's funny because I think the the fear that always goes along with that, I, I think when people consider taking that approach is, you know, we, what if we essentially give away our ideas in this meeting? You know, what, what if I, I, have, I, I understand that's absolutely the fear. I have found that to be entirely unfounded, uh-huh. you know, in a situation where someone comes to me where they have a problem that is so easily solved that a 30-minute or hour conversation can require them to not need my services, then my gut is telling me that they didn't need my services in the first place. And what am I going to do? Sign a professional services agreement with them and stretch out an hour-long conversation into two weeks? You know, if I decide that they can, I can solve their problem by giving them an hour's worth of advice, then let's just do that and get it over with and tell a friend you liked me and maybe there'll be another deal down the road. So do you think that approach has been – is – common i mean i I, it feels like when we 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 find a lot of clients and potential clients who seem almost who seem almost surprised by it do you see the same thing well i see that i I think it's probably more common in our industry because our industry tends to be populated with a lot of people who really like what they do and naturally inquisitive and so when we see when i see someone with a content management problem my first thought is not to the invoice um my first thought is Gosh, that's a really interesting problem. What can we do about that? Uh, but I think in other industries, you know, I've worked in, in let's take a traditional sales-driven industry like real estate, for instance. I, I don't know that, that people who work in the real estate industry are that passionate about solving real estate problems. And in fact, in the commercial real estate industry, which historically I've had some experience with, uh, they tend to be very, very kind of mercenary, high-powered sales executives. And so they're much more kind of sales driven. So I think it depends on the industry. There are some industries that are very much focused on the invoice and there's some industries that are very much focused on the problem. And I'm, I'm happy to work in an industry that tends to be more problem focused. Yep. I, I think, uh, I think I was joking around with a friend a while back that, you know, it, you, you know that you're, you're right for the world of consulting when you, you wake up in cold sweats in the middle of the night with, with just, terrified that someone somewhere out there someone is working on an interesting problem and you don't you haven't heard about it (laughs) oh i know deals that like we'll be working on a deal on a sales deal with somebody and i'll get terrified we're not going to land the deal because someone else could solve my problem because it's my problem now and i want (laughs) to solve that problem and i don't want to give it up for the revenue i don't want to give it up because that's a problem i could solve and it's like it's like, like my child now and you can't take that from me yep yeah, it, 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 there's actually a, a client who we've been working with that I got a chance to look at their CMS infrastructure and like what they've already done with it and what they want to do with it. And it's like, okay, now it's, you know, we really want to work with them in the future because, you know, it'd, it'd be great to land that, you know, that project. But also, oh, man, it's such a cool space they're working in. It would just be a shame not to chew on some of those issues. I I feel, too, that, I mean, the aggregation of knowledge, I mean, you are fundamentally the accumulation of your past professional experiences, professionally speaking. And so 
a new problem is a new angle. It's a new perspective. I think there's no client engagement when I haven't been able to I absorb something that changed me as a professional and made me better at what I do. And so, you know, even bad problems and bad software will change you and make you better in terms of giving you more experience and kind of more things in your, your toolkit. So I, I welcome them in that respect. So, um, I mean, you've worked on a, a fairly wide variety of projects at Blend and even before that. I mean, I, you know, you, I think you, you know, mentioned a couple of them just now, but like, what got you into the CMS or the content management space first? What like, you know, lit the fire? So I love content management because I love content. And in fact, I did a, I did, here's a URL that you can put and view for, for, on the website. Um, but I did a blog post about why I love to manage content. I'm very, very passionate about content. I look at content as fulfilling a need. It's answering a question. Somewhere in the world has a question that your content is going to answer. And I feel a very, very philosophical, emotional connection to content and to managing content. And I, I always maintain I want to be the silent librarian lurking in the background that smiles when somebody who finds what they're looking for. And and that's that's how I feel it. I like to be an enabler that enables good content editors and content creators to do what they do. I, I, we're the connection. The people who, who run content management systems, the people who implement content management systems, we are the connection between the content creator and the consumer. We are the person that facilitates that meeting. We're the host of that meeting, and I find a very deep, I mean, at the risk of being too dramatic, I have a very deep emotional connection to that role. I feel very strongly about it. Well, it, it's interesting because it seems like that way of talking and thinking about it contrasts pretty heavily with, like, I'm not sure what the best way to put it is, but the, the all the negative aspects of, like, the, the, the trends in content marketing that have become dominant in certain sectors of the industry, the, the sort of, you know, the, sh the shovelware of content and the sort of, you know, it, it's, it's a whole movement that in some ways seems less concerned with, like, the needs and the desires and the pain points of the people who are looking for content and seeking those answers and and uh, I, I think, you know, the, the, the sort of philosophy that you described can really cut through that. Well, I think so. And it depends on the content that you're managing. You know, we're living in a BuzzFeed world. We're, we're living in a world of clickbait headlines and, and content that exists solely for the purpose of generating ad impressions. And that's sad, but, but it's very true. And blends, the projects that blends works on don't really fit into that space too much. We, we generally concentrate on what we call the institutional market, which is higher education, religious, nonprofit, association, healthcare. And these are tend to be content heavy spaces. But I, I always mean that my dream project is like the Library of Congress. I mean, that's my <laughs> dream project. Someone who comes to me with you know, 500,000 content objects, and we do have clients running 500,000 content objects. They need to sort them and organize. I mean, that's my kind of project. I'm not a heavy marketing guy. I mean, if you have a 20-page website, you need to sell more widgets. I'm not that guy. I've never bought a Google AdWord. I wouldn't even know how. So we're very much focused on the heavy, heavy content space with big, complicated content problems. Higher education, that market lends itself very nicely to that. Mm -hmm to that market. There, there's just a lot of heavy content problems in higher ed. And so uh, that's, that's kind of the space that, that we exist in. I feel very strongly about it, and I'm happy to work in it.
Yeah, I think the, the the distinction that I've talked about a couple of times is organizations where content isn't um, something that serves a larger organizational need, but it's a part of the actual core mission of what they do, like either providing we, it to people or, you know. We use the phrase mission-driven organization. I mean, we, we tend to work for mission-driven organizations, and I, and I like that, that delineation that you just explained. I mean, delivering content is related to the mission. It's not ancillary to the mission. It fundamentally is the mission. The largest content management implementation that we manage is for a religious organization, and we manage um, 100 years' worth of articles from three different publications. That, that, is, some, that is some deep cuts. Oh, it is, and, and delivering that information to people is, is core to their mission, and that's when, you know, libraries, I, I spent years as a kid, I was bullied terribly as a kid, and I found refuge in the library. And I spent hours and hours in the library, and I just loved being surrounded by all those books. And it was just amazing to me that there was so much information and how it was organized and put together. And there's there's real beauty in that. You know, I always, there was, there was a, a song by the Flowbots like 10 years ago. And there was, a, there was a line in the song called, I can rule a nation with a microphone. And that's a really, really remarkable thought when you, when you think about it, because fundamentally information, the dissemination and communication of information can topple governments. It can change the world. And, and we're getting very, very dramatic here, but, <laughs> but sometimes I think about that. I think about the things that we do. When we manage content, we are organizing, distributing, communication, communicating content and information, and that can change the world. It absolutely can. Yeah, I mean, it... Well, you, you, you're definitely preaching to the choir here, but I, I'm I'm I'm, gl I'm glad to hear. I'm always glad to hear somebody who's who's passionate about. This that. is why it's dangerous for you and me to talk. <laughs> right? It's conversations like this. Yeah, I, I I at some point when it's a little more developed, I'll, I'll have to chat with you. I've got a whole thing that's sort of percolating about um, looking at the content modeling process in the way that linguists look at language and forms of communication and ex exploring like breaking down a content model less as a purely technical exercise and more of trying to find the like the rhythm and the patterns and the structures in the way a particular organization commu uniquely communicates and well, that, like you just described my second book <laughs> I, I you know speaking of that's an excellent speaking segue of, that was a segue yeah it, nicely played um you're, you're you're working on um web content management um with o'reilly media which i think there, there's a lot of people who've been reading your blog for i think like a decade now or something like that who, who've been saying you know you, sh you should just put those posts together and just call it a book and now you're actually writing literally the book on web content management so what what's what's behind that other than an undying passion for content what what made you make the jump to say let's do this you know i i've always wanted to write a book for a number of I my mean, entire life i wanted to write a book because kind of that was the stamp of approval and your knowledge if, if somebody would print a book full of things that you've written so it was very kind of emotional drive to write a book and then over the years you know i've probably written 10 books in gadgetopia posts alone and you know, the last year after our conference, we do a conference every April. In fact, you spoke at it last year. And in fact, I think you were at this meeting that I am about to describe. We were sitting in a restaurant across the street from my office. And we were talking about writing books and who's writing a book. Because a lot of people in our industry, a lot of people that you and I know have written books. And um, 
Uh, I mentioned that I had a book proposal that I had shopped around. I had sent to a few places, and I, I couldn't get anyone to pick up on it. And someone mentioned that I try O'Reilly. And so I literally went to O'Reilly's website, and I filled out their web form with the description of the book they wanted to write. Literally, I just went there and filled out the, the web form. And then about three weeks later, I got an email uh, from an editor named Allie at uh, O'Reilly. And she says, this, this sounds very interesting. And uh, she sent me a Word document and said, could you fill this out with some more information? And I, I filled that out. And I happened to have written a document about relational databases like a few weeks before that was fairly well written. And so I sent that along as my writing sample. And I didn't hear anything for two or three weeks. And then she came back and said, said we'd like to move ahead with the project. And uh, it was kind of that moment where we were staring at the screen. I was like, wow, did I just get a book deal with O'Reilly, the most venerable, respected tech book publisher in the world? Um, it was it was a remarkable moment, and uh, we went through some negotiations on the contract, which really was was pointless. I mean, for God's sakes, I would write the book for free. Uh, they were talking to me about you know royalties and this and that, and and I didn't want to be irresponsible. At the same time, I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and then uh, they they sent me the contract, and I'm, it's just so sad. It was a digitally signed contract, right? So I was supposed to go online and like digitally sign it. No, I printed that thing off. I signed it in ink, and I took a picture of that. Oh yeah. Yeah, and then, and then I posted that picture. Yeah, posted it all over social media. So that's kind of how it came about, and um, and uh, you know that was last um, late last summer, and so we're eight months later, and I'm probably a bit over halfway done with it because what I found out sadly is that writing a book in theory is wonderful, but then you actually have to write the thing. It, it turns out there's the whole writing a book process. <laughs> Right. They want you to put words and string them together into sentences, and it's a whole thing. And so there's a contextual jump from, hey, I got a book deal in theory to, holy cow, I've got to write a thousand words today uh, that, uh, yeah. that you have to make. And, and, and what I found, too, is that it's not linear. You know, things will get crazy at work, and I won't write anything for three weeks, and then I'll burn through three chapters in a week. And, sort of a punctuated so process. Yeah, it's not linear. You kind of do it in fits and spurts, but... Um, uh, we're making time. I'm about halfway through chapter eight now and, uh, I'm making progress. So uh, hopefully I believe it's to be published this fall. Can, well, uh, I, I don't want to be premature, but congratulations. It sounds like you're, you're making great progress. I think I, I've, I did, I think a couple chapters of a book that a bunch of Lullabots participated in a while back uh, for O'Reilly too. And it, 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 I, I feel like, I'm, it's a little presumptuous to even say, oh, yes, that's how the process works. Because, you know, doing three isolated chapters is very different than, like, carrying through the whole thing. You know, the trick is, too, is reconciling what you're doing with the image of, of what's in your head. Um, I, it's been so long, and I've, I've thought so long about writing this book, that you almost don't want to write anything because you feel like you won't do justice to the, the version of this that you have floating in your head. And you really have to set that aside. The sort of and platonic the form of, of the vision that exists in your heart. Right. This is the actual, you know, manifestation of, of the dream. And uh, I have to, the phrase I stick with is, is that's what second editions are for. And whenever <laughs> I, I look at that and I'm like, well, that's, it's not perfect, but that's what second editions are for. And uh, what I'm finding too is that, you know, you struggle with the amount of tacit knowledge that you've absorbed over the years. And you'll write something, and then you'll read through it, and you'll be like, well, that doesn't make sense unless they understand A, B, and C. And then you start writing about A, B, and C, and you're like, well, crap. To understand B, they have to understand D. And to understand C, they have to understand E, F, and G. And then you keep kind of peeling back layers of the onions, and, and you know, 
you get really, really far back. And so you have to be careful on how much knowledge you assume of the reader. Yeah. And uh, it's a very interesting process to identify all of the tacit unspoken knowledge that you have absorbed over the years. Yeah, I think it, it can't, I can never remember whether it was Sagan or um, as Carl Sagan or uh, Isaac Asimov who said that uh, to, to make an apple pie, first you have to create the universe. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, that's fascinating is that there's everything that we have done, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And everything that you do, there's about 8 million different predicate things that you just completely take for granted. And the, the, understanding that point is one thing, but the, the second thing to understand is when do you cut that off? I mean, yeah. at what point do I not tell them to turn the computer on? Right? Well, I think that that's one of the fascinating things, especially like for anyone, uh, I think, you know, both of us have been there at least for, uh, you know, a, a good part of the the web life cycle. Um it, it started so remarkably simply, you know, if, if you're like willing to accept and there are computers and they're connected by a network, you know, as a sort of baseline, like the web was remarkably simple and managing content for it was more about like just heavy labor of managing lots of files than anything else for, for a number of years. And, but it's, it's a, just a staggeringly complex process now because of the systems that we've built and accumulated to support this effort. I find it very, very funny when um, we've worked so hard to abstract our way, our, our way away from the details of what it takes to publish content. Um, we've worked so hard to make content exist in some kind of pure universal state and abstract our way away from the mechanics. And when I work with a decoupled content management system, like we were evaluating a couple for a client and it's a decoupled system that, you know, decoupled systems write content out. They actually write HTML files and put them on a server somewhere for delivery. And I find it remarkable because those systems, suddenly you're confronted with files and folders again, and you're actually creating files and folders. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, what the hell? We've spent so long in trying to get away from this model, and now suddenly now we're back to like the <laughs> details and the mechanics of, of web publishing, which is remarkable. And in saying that, I, I absolutely don't mean to indict decoupled systems, and there are a lot of absolute advantages to there. In fact, some of the things in the two systems we looked at were wonderful, but it was just a little jarring to kind of be sent <laughs> back to files and folders and like, oh, yeah, this is the actual mechanics of how this stuff gets delivered. It was kind of interesting. Yep. So like given, you know, given the breadth of that stuff, what, what kind of, what kind of topics are you focusing on in the book? Like what, what's the, the heart of it, do you think? So I think the heart of it is um, just a, a feature analysis. I'm covering the, the four, what I would call the four pillars of content management, which is content modeling, uh, the concept of describing a content object and, and describing how that works and, and modeling that piece of content, then content aggregation, which is the idea of gathering content objects together as a group um, for presentation. And then uh, editorial workflow, which is the content creation process and how a CMS supports that, things like versioning and workflow and permissions and things like that. And then finally, um, publishing and, and distribution management. So once you have all the stuff modeled and aggregated and created, how do you actually get it out in a location where it can be consumed? And I think those four things are really the pillar of content management. And uh, that's really the central section of the book, or four very long chapters about that. 
And then it's bookended by several things. It's bookended by, uh, by several different introductory chapters, especially things like how do you acquire a content management system? What are the different models? You know, there's a SaaS model, there's on-premise, there's open source. Uh, who are the members of the content management team? You have developers, you have front-end developers, back-end developers. Who, who's going to be on the team? And, uh, and then the tail end are going to be the more finer grain concepts like translation and, and uh, image and file management, some of the more finer grain concepts. Whenever you're writing a book, I think you really have to ask yourself who the audience for the book is for. And my audience has always been kind of my prototypical personal user is going to be a project manager that works in a company and has been asked to investigate or implement a new content management system. And I've always had that user in my head, and so I'm looking at a semi-technical user that does have some IT knowledge, but doesn't know anything about content management in general. And I'm kind of going to, for the ground up for that persona, and that has has very much helped. And I, and I think that type of person, once they read the book, once they get to the end, they would have a very, very end-to-end end end understanding of what a CMS is, what it does, what are the popular features and functions, and what an implementation would look like. And so that's what I'm going for. Cool. I, well, I, I, I'm eagerly awaiting it. Although technically, I think it is possible to get like the early access uh, version of it. You can. You can actually buy it now and, and you get the first four chapters. And I think within a few weeks, the second four chapters uh, will be released. And it's, I think it's their, I don't know what they call their the O'Reilly program, but apparently it's been very, very popular. And you can buy buy the book, and and it's it's rough. I promise you, there'll be some typos and some problems in there. But then, once the book is published, you get also get the final version of the book. And so it is out there. And actually, um, it's there's a website, uh, FlyingSquirrelBook.com, uh, which was a website that we put together. It will take you to the O'Reilly page, so it's a little easier to remember FlyingSquirrelBook.com, or I think you can go to TheFlyingSquirrelBook.com. And the whole flying squirrel part is a whole another story too. So, well, you know, anytime the O'Reilly animal comes in, it's you know you're official. Okay, so here's the here's the truth of it, and I don't know if I'm supposed to say this or not, but you actually don't get to pick the animal. I, um, yeah, and everyone thinks that like you know like the first person got to pick the best animal, and you're sort of left with no, but it's there's an entire team that like figures out what your animal will be. Yes, they have a design department that figures it out. And they're very nice about it, and they're very flexible. Because I'll tell you, they sent me two animals that I didn't like um, <laughs> for various reasons. But then they basically, they were kind of clear with me that, that we're going to go back a third time, and you got to make one of these three work. And the third one that came back to me was, was a flying squirrel, which, just, let's face it, could not be more awesome. I, I was hoping for a flying squirrel or the honey badger, one of the two. Um, you but, got like uh, the, they the Rocky a, and Bullwinkle tie-in right there. Right. I was super excited about this. I was I, seriously, I was just jumping for joy when the scroll came out. Um, but they have a, they have a collection of drawings, I think from like the 18th or 19th century, which is kind of where the motif for the covers came from. And, uh, I, I suspect they haven't told me this, but I suspect they're probably running out of animals by this point. So, uh, they, uh, um, I don't know if they custom commission these things now or what, but it's not like you can go in and just demand a certain animal. But what I wanted, and this this is so arrogant to even talk about, so I, let me just turn off my arrogance filter for a second. <laughs> but everybody has the dream of their book becoming like iconic, and especially along the O'Reilly line, you have the llama book and the rhino book and the polar bear book and these kind of the python book, these kind of I, I, iconic books. And I had this dream that someday my book would be this iconic book in the field, which sounds absurd when I say it out loud. But, but I got flying squirrel, the flying squirrel, and so book, I, yeah. I immediately registered flyingsquirrelbook.com. 
so which tells you where my thinking's at. So um, you, you, you got to stake maybe, out maybe. that namespace. You know, in the in the IA world, everybody knows what the Polar Bear book was. And in fact, there's funny, funny, about the same time I was wrestling with this cover, I saw a picture that somebody posted to Twitter. There was an environmental protest, and somebody had dressed up as a polar bear for this environmental, and the polar bear got arrested. And so someone took a picture of, they had handcuffed this guy in this polar bear suit, and they were sticking him back in the police car. And they posted it to Twitter, and they said, it's a sad day for IA. And... <laughs> The okay, the most famous book in information architecture is Information Architecture for the World Wide Web, which was by um, Lou Rosenfeld and Peter Morville, and that has a polar bear on it. And anybody who works in the IA space knows what the polar bear book is. And so the joke was the polar bear is being arrested, and it's a sad day for IA. And that was coming out right when I was wrestling with the whole cover animal issue. It did not make and the I choice any it, easier. I sent it to my editor, and I was like, this is what I'm talking about. I want an animal that people are going to remember for years. And it's it's funny. I maybe maybe six months from now the book will land with a thud, and this this conversation will seem hysterical in retrospect. But well, you know, I I, I think that's that's one of the interesting things. Like there there are books that focus on. I think you know the the divide with a lot of those technical books is, you know, system specific, um, you know, reference and you know tutorial style books, and then like idea oriented books. Like you know the the polar bear book I think is timeless in large part because you know it came out when like you know tackling you know you when vignette was something that people would throw at a large you know at a large cms implementation and but it didn't focus on system specific stuff it focused on the problems that people were trying to solve regardless of the systems and i think that that kind of approach is one of those things that can lead to a more timeless kind of book well, and that's where i'm at on this book because this book is to my knowledge is one of the first uh, platform-independent um, CMS books they've done. I mean, they have done Drupal books. In fact, I think you were involved with one of the Drupal books. Um, they've done Drupal books, and they've done Joomla books, and they've done WordPress books, but this is not bound to, this is a CMS agnostic book. It's really got nothing to do with content, a particular content management system. It's got everything to do with content management as a practice and as a discipline and as a field of software. And I maintain that very little of what I've written so far will not be relevant 25 years from now. 25 years from now, 90% of everything I've written so far will still be completely relevant because there are eternal perpetual problems in content management which really relate to eternal perpetual concepts in in library science and mm -hmm. in information science and in information philosophy. These are not flash like pan issues. Think, yeah, that's right. I, I like to think I'm solving issues that you know, uh, uh, librarians from the 18th century were struggling with as well. And again, that just may be hopelessly arrogant, but that's the dream anyway. Well, I mean, but I, I think, I think, you know, the, the point is a good one. I think the last book that I know of that really took that kind of approach was like the, the content management Bible. Um, and that was like, I think that was something like 2004. That was, that was more than a decade ago that it, that it first came out. Oh, it's it's even older than that. I actually had breakfast 18 months ago with Bob Boyko in uh, Seattle. He's at the University of Washington. And I read the Content Management Bible. In fact, um, I'm turning around looking. Yes, it is. There it is. It's right there on my bookshelf. It's dog-eared, and it's probably got three different colors of highlighting in it. And I think the version I have sitting over there was the third edition was about 1,100 pages. Yeah. And that's like the seminal book. And Boyko is like my absolute hero. And... Um, 
but, but that's absolutely right. Boyko approached it from an information management approach. And he teaches at the iSchool at the University of Washington. I mean, he teaches at the, um, at the information management school. And so this is kind of what he does. But he solved kind of eternal problems. And, of course, he wrote that book back in the days of, of Red Dot and Vignette and Interwoven and Documentum and kind of these old school, old guard CMSs. But I, the problems that he wrote about still exist today. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, before we before we uh, wrap up, I know one of the things that you mentioned was that the actual system that O'Reilly Media uses for its book editing is interesting from, uh, you know, in, in for this for these very reasons. I know they've, they've got a I think they they design like their own document for they helped design their own document format and everything and have their own CMS around it. What, what What's the deal with that? So it's really neat. It's an O'Reilly product called Atlas. Um, they they eat their own dog food, or I should say they force they force their authors to eat their dog food. Um, if you go to atlas.oreilly.com, uh, it's out there, and uh, it's a product. And I I don't know what the business model is about it. I think you can rent it. I, I think you can it's software as a service or something. But what I do is I write the book as text files in a format called ASCII doc. Um, it's kind of a hot-rotted markdown. You can actually write them in markdown if you want to, but ASCII doc actually has quite a bit more functionality. It lets you do all the callouts and the sidebars and everything like that. So I write them and then I check them into a Git repo. And uh, so there's a repository of all the text files and all the images and everything to create this document. And then I can go online and I can build the document to a... I, that's maybe naive. I would call it a print-ready PDF, and someone in document publishing would probably say that's not close to print-ready. But I can, within about 30 seconds, I can get a PDF that looks exactly like an animal book from my perspective. It looks, I mean, it has the page formatting. It has exactly like it would look as an animal book, and it's it's remarkable. I can print out one chapter. Or I can print out all the chapters or rearrange the chapters. What they're doing is they take the ASCII doc and they actually turn it into HTML, and then they transform the HTML to the PDF. So uh, what that means is that I could even write in HTML if I wanted to like fire up Dreamweaver. I don't even know if that's still a thing, but I could write it in HTML, but I choose to write in the ASCII doc. And then I can output different formats as well. I can get it as HTML. I can get it as EPUB. I can get it as Mobi. I can get it as PDF. They really have done a remarkable job with it. And I actually edit in an open source text editor called Atom, which I had never heard of before. Oh, yeah. But, I know a bunch of people who are like Atom fanatics. Yeah, and, and the reason why it's very popular is it has a huge extension API based on it's a JavaScript extension API. And one of the packages is an ASCII doc preview package. Ah. So I'm writing in one pane, and it's automatically rendering an ASCII doc in the other pane, which is a really nice way to write. And then I just I use uh, Git. I check this thing into a Git repo, and then I can build it. And at any given time, when I edited you know, all my chapters, I actually edit them in the format. They will actually appear in the book, which is really remarkable. It's it's a very neat system. And it is for, I'm going to say for purchase. I don't know if it's purchase or software as a service or what it is. But if that's something that would interest anybody that's listening, um, atlas.oreilly.com is, is the website. And that's what I use to write the book. 
Well, cool. You know, so I, you know, I, I have to say, by the way, it, it, when when we were doing the uh, the using Drupal book, it, we were it was before Atlas, and uh, it you know we we worked with a bunch of you know Microsoft Word templates that you know had standard macros and styles and stuff like that, and it's it's really cool to see that because I know at the time even their editors were like, yeah, we. We're, 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 we, we, need to, we need to build something that, that works better than this. And it's really exciting to see that actually having come to fruition. It's, it's pretty brilliant what, what they've done. I have very, very much been impressed with it. And I keep looking at it and think I almost wish I, have a very, I had a massive document publishing problem. <laughs> it's, it's, it seems like such a neat way to solve it. Yeah, that, that is spoken exactly like someone who loves solving the problems. Um, that's, that's, that's I, I right? Wish... When you sit around and, and dream about having problems that you could then solve, yes. that's when you, you may have a larger problem you need help with. Or you may be a really dedicated professional with a, with a field that you've staked out. Yeah. But here's the um, hoping. <laughs> well, so, you know, but before we close, I think, you know, a question that I'm curious about is, you know, before until your book comes out, um, that that person that you described as the target audience, that sort of, you know, project manager or person who's been given the responsibility of like getting their organization onto a, you know, onto a new system or a system that works to sort of bring order to the chaos of, of their content. What? What would you say is like the important, you know, like first step for them to take in, in trying to make sense of the, the giant roiling world of like tech and information, con, information science and all, all that stuff? You know, that's tough to say. I think information, content management is rooted in a real understanding of information architecture and how information goes together. Um, I think that a content management system is the reification or it is the, the concrete implementation of an information architecture system. Uh, and so, you know, if I could re recommend a book that would very, very much help, it would probably be the Polar Bear book, which I know that I think Lou and Peter are working on another a version of, a fourth version of. But I, I still think to this day that the Polar Bear book is is largely the guidepost by which content management systems, I mean, it's the North Star that we kind of follow. It, it, we are making concrete implementations of systems for people to manifest their information architecture. And I still think the Polar Bear book stands today as, as the, the greatest work we've done on digital information architecture. And so if somebody today, until my book comes out, which will then, of course, <laughs> replace the Polar Bear book as the, as the gold standard, I'm, I'm joking, of course, um, I think a solid understanding of IA is is something you absolutely have to understand. And uh, in terms of concrete ways to do that, I, I, you can't do much better than the Polar Bear book. Well, well, that, I, I I would have to agree. It's you know that and that and the CMS Bible have always felt like sort of the the go to references. You, you you can't go wrong with that. But. Well, thank you very much. Um, it's been a pleasure. And uh, for anybody who's listening, um, you can follow Dean at Gadgetopia on Twitter. And uh, it's Gadgetopia.com uh, where your blog is located, right? Absolutely. And, and I'm sure that I'll be back sometime after the book's published and there will be a, a fantastic jingle. Right? <laughs> well, we'll have to update it, you know, with like maybe some maybe some grunge Maybe some crunchy guitars in the background. Right. Do, do it just for my episode. That's yes, really. absolutely. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot and have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Insert Content Here. If you'd like to catch up on our archives or keep up on our new episodes, 
visit us at lullabot.com slash ideas slash podcasts slash insert content here. You can also visit us directly at insertcontenthere.com. Thank you.